Uh, well, the early church um, had writings other than what we now call the New Testament that it used and read um, to help them understand what it mean, meant to be a Christian and part of, uh, part of Jesus' church. And one of those writings that the early church used is called the Didache, which means the teaching. Uh, it's short for the teaching of the 12 apostles. Uh, this was written probably in the first century, maybe the second century, and was used regularly by the early church. And it was essentially instructions for Christian life and worship. It's broken into four sections. The first, way, the first section is called the two ways, and it opens with the line, there are two ways, one which leads to life and one which leads to death. And then that section talks about uh, Christian living and holiness and sanctification. The next section is on worship. It talks about different Christian rituals like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, the third section is on church leadership, uh, including leadership in a congregation that stays in one place and leadership that's itinerant, so traveling teachers and prophets. And then the, the fourth section is on the return of Christ. Um, and you can easily read the Didache on the internet, uh, and I encourage you to do that, but of course the question is why? There's a million things to read, why should I read the Didache? Um, and I'm just gonna give you one reason why I think you should, we all should read the Didache, um, and mainly because it helps us break out of our kind of 21st century church and cultural assumptions um, and the sense that we are uh, kind of at the center of God's narrative. We are in one sense, each one of us is at the center of God's narrative and God's plan for us, but the church is a big, big institution that has included thousands and millions of people and it goes back 2,000 years. And um, reading the Didache can help remind us that we're part of a bigger story and a bigger group of people. We aren't the first people who have tried to be Christians and tried to figure out what it means to live together in the community of the church. Um, and reading how other people have um, gone through that uh, process with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit uh, can only be good for us. So I'm going to turn it over to Tenley to read the scripture. Today we have two portions of scripture. We'll start with Micah 6 verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Our second scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of God. I guess I wanted to uh, pick on Kyle a little bit about my 12 cues that I couldn't come up with. <laughs> if you remember his statement from last Sunday. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence here. And we just ask that you would just speak to our hearts and change our lives. Get in there and do what needs to be done. And help us to know you more, more and to understand your heart and your ways and to understand the great love that you have for us and the great passion that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess the question I want to start out with is, is Christ Jesus enough for you? I think that's something that we all need to ponder. Uh, I know these passages are kind of different, but not really. There's a lot in them. And I realize also that I'm not going to cover a lot of things that are, that are in those passages. Uh, I, th I think the one in Corinthians, you could probably preach three or four, five, six, seven times and still not cover it all. Uh, there's a lot in Micah there, too. It took a lot of reading to begin to understand what really he was speaking and saying there. Uh, but I think, they have, I think there's, these passages have something to say to us, and that's what I want to do. That, and, the, and the main idea is that we are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, I ask that question, is Christ Jesus enough for you? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of these things that I wrote down because I don't I just no way I could ever remember them all. So I just want to read a few things here, some of these things here. So if you could put yourself in a place where you could see the world, the earth, through the eyes of God, what would you see? If you could see like God sees, right into the heart of man and know his thoughts, his evil ideas, his good ideas, everything about him. What would be your thought? Remember, you're getting the viewpoint of God. You're trying to get the viewpoint of God. Would you see this messed up, broken world spinning in space in a universe that is corrupted? Would you really see it all like God sees? What we see with our eyes is not really what God sees. His vision is not fallen and corrupted like ours. His eyes see clearly, not just what is physical, but right into the depths of who we are. Every motivation, the why of everything in us, absolutely nothing is hidden from his seeing eye. Neither is anything hidden from his ear. He hears unspoken things as clearly as if they were spoken a precise language. Man looks at everything different. 1 Corinthians 1.20, which was read, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? His ways are so much higher than ours. So everything in the world that, that the world portrays as being wise and, and, and intelligent, not, not, not in the eyes of God. He is so far above it all. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 8, it says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What is the wisdom that the rulers of this age did not understand? It's this, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In that is the key. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness sanctification, and redemption. And now I want, to, I want to talk to you about a people who thought the wisdom of this world was the right way. A people whom God continually said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and out of bondage. These people were addressed, these people are Israel. Addressed by Micah the prophet. In Micah 5, chapter 5, which we didn't read, but a few verses in there really spell it out why, why chapter 6 is there. When God comes and says, hear what the Lord is saying. I have a case against you. It's like a trial, a courtroom. I've got a case against you. 
And here's the case. But this is, but before I go there, I want to, to share with you what this case that God had against Israel. In Micah 5, starting at verse 10, I'm going to read some of the, I'm going to read six of these verses, but just listen to some of the phrases that are repeated again and again. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. He says four times, cut off. He's cutting off something. He says, removing these things from your hands. And three times he made this statement, from among you. And those three statements, from among you, really point out three things that God was angry over Israel about. He says, I'm going to cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. There's a lot that can be said about that. We could say of the United States, um, I think of the verse, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any, any people. We have one of the most powerful military force in the world, and probably that has ever been. And yet, God is not impressed by it. What impresses God is righteousness. Now let's bring that down. You have strength, and you can do something. So you're faced with an issue in life, a difficulty, and what do you do? I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to find somebody that can, I'm going to find another person who can talk to me about this, and I'm going to solve this problem, and I'm going to go out there and get it taken care of. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Wouldn't it be more wise to kneel in prayer before the one who made you and ask him for wisdom? Ask him for understanding. Ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to lead you and guide you and give discernment so that you can make a right decision in that, in that issue that you're facing. Israel did not. They turned to other things. They thought they had a strong military. The reality is when Assyria captured Israel, there was a military force to deal with in Israel. But it didn't stop Assyria at all because God was not with Israel because they didn't look to him. They looked to their own strength. So he cut off their chariots. He cut off their strength. When I was younger, I thought, well, if there's a problem, I can attack it. I can fix it. I'll just go after it and do what I need to do. 
And now, since I keep going back to my experience on May 19th, but I can't help it. God just did something to me. And now the cry of my heart is, God, don't ever let me go back on to be my own, to try to fix things on my own. Don't ever let me be my own again. I don't ever want to do that again. I want you. And that needs to be the cry of our heart. Christ Jesus, you are enough for me. I will look to you. I will seek your face. I will find out what your answer is. I will find out how you want me to deal with this. I will run to you in everything. In your finances, in your emotional turmoil, in decisions that have been made that don't please you. I will run to you in everything. You know, there are things that hurt us in this life. There are things that come at us. And some of the things, they're out of our control, but they still hit us and they still hurt. Our example is Jesus. He opened not his mouth. A crown of thorns was thrown on his head. He didn't open his mouth. He was beat to within an inch of his life with a whips. He didn't open his mouth. He was hung on a cross. He didn't open his mouth in complaint. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the attitude that, that Jesus wants to work within us because he wants us to be like him. In other words, stop complaining. We do not need to complain. That is one thing that God has spoken to Israel when they were in the wilderness. You grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. I provided everything you need, but you grumbled and you grumbled and you grumbled. No wonder scripture makes it clear that when you give thanks to God, you honor him. You cannot give thanks to God when you're grumbling. Because then you're telling God it's not enough. You know, one of the things I've thought about, wouldn't it be nice, you know, I don't do this anymore. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have this much money, win a lottery? I don't play them stupid things. Because you know what that says? God, what you've provided for me is not enough. And that's grumbling. I would rather say, thank you, God. I'm eating today. I have clothes to wear. My heater works in a cold day like this. And to give thanks to God, because he is our provision for everything. And if you went out there and you made the money and you got it, you give thanks to God that he gave your hands the ability to make wealth, the ability to work, the talent to do what you do. Don't open your mouth in grumbling. Open your mouth in thanksgiving. That pleases God. That honors him. That brings his blessings down. I'm going to go back here and just read a few other things that I wrote down here. One of the problems that the people in 
Micah's time were involved in was sorcery. Kind of like just looking. Well, Revelation 21.8 and 22.15 states that sorcerers will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever. Showing how seriously the Lord regarded this evil. Israel many times attempted to annex to itself spiritual forces outside of Yahweh, the covenant God. This opened up Israel to demonic forces. The Lord gave prophets to Israel to declare the word to Israel, a word that demands faith in the Lord God who rules the future according to ethics. One of the problems that Israel, that Israel had was their false balances. They'd bring in, weigh this out, weigh this out, a false balance, so that the person doing the false balancing could get more than the person who was bringing it in to cheat them. Another problem was that they coveted lands from other people and took the land away from them when they could think about waiting to do it. So God has ethics. God has a way of purity and holiness. When those ways are not followed, God's going to do something about it. He's not going to just lightly, lightly look at that and ignore it. The idols brought on something else, and I want to read here and what it, what I've written. Micah five twelve, which said, "I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune tellers no more." It says refers to the rock representations of the Canaanite fertility god Baal, and verse thirteen to the wood representations of his consort Asherah male and female gods, and those associated with them involved themselves in erotic sex acts. This, these gods pandered to the sensual lusts of their devotees. Throughout history, worship of idols goes along with sexual immorality. Sexual sin is connected with the demonic activity, and those involved in it opened themselves to the darkness and the dominion and authority of, of the demonic world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 17-19, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You might think, well, does this really have anything to do with, with me? Well, here's the point. It's the sensuality, it, which means not necessarily immorality. It can and does. But we are, are, are we so in tune with our own senses and our own fleshy feelings and thoughts that we put them far above what God is and says to us? Do we make that preeminent in our life more than the leading of the, of the Holy Spirit? Do we know God well enough that when we feel like something, 
that the Holy Spirit can check us and stop that. So it isn't necessary an immoral thing that I'm, that I'm talking about. That may not be the, the problem. But if it is, then you need to stop because you're opening up your life to the demonic. And one of the problems with opening up your life to the demonic is you do not know what you're getting into. That's why sorcery, animism, and voodooism, which is part of what Micah was speaking against, opens up yourself to a world that God forbids you to get into because you do not know the power of it. It's why Jesus had to go to the cross and shed his blood. That protects us from all this demonic realm because the demonic realm has one purpose and one purpose only, to kill you, steal from you, and to destroy you. Don't open up your life to any of that stuff. You do not know what you're getting into. It took the power of the blood to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son, Jesus. And that's where I want to be. And that's where each one of you need to be. Do not let your feelings, your emotions, your senses dictate how you're going to live. Let the Holy Spirit dictate how you're going to live. You cannot let even a good feeling rule in your life because it may not be the right feeling. I, I, hate, I hate songs, like an old country western song that used to say, if loving you is wrong, if loving, I can't even remember the words now. <laughs> Something, there you go. If loving you is right, I don't want to be wrong. Or some, loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. You will get it. <laughs> but you're getting the point of what I'm saying. You know, good feelings can't guide you. They may be right. They may not be right. Only the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Only the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. If you do not read the Word, how is the Holy Spirit going to remind you of what you've been taught? If it's not there, He can't remind you of it. If you don't meditate upon the Word, how is the Word going to direct your life? One of the prayers that I pray for Life Church often is that we would know the Word, we would know the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would meditate upon the Word, and that the Spirit would take the Word and, and work in us to the point where it would help us to make every decision in our life. It would affect everything that we do in life. It would affect our politics. It would affect our finances. It would affect our relationships. It would affect everything. Without the knowledge of this word, tell me, how are you going to make decisions that are right? How do you know anything's right or wrong? We do not. We're going to follow our own emotions and our own feelings. They're going to mislead us. They have misled me. And the results were disastrous. And all I can say is, because of the mercy of Jesus, 
He rescued me. And he's made life wonderful for me. Circumstances haven't changed, but my life is good because I have him. That's what makes the difference. You can, I can tell you what, he, what God thinks about idols. You see, these things become idols in our lives. When we, when we start to rule, let our senses rule, they become idols. When we let immorality rule, it becomes an idol. Here's what God thinks about idols. This is found in 2 Kings 10.27. They also, this is, this, is, this is an action that one of the kings of Israel was doing, and it was really right. <laughs> he was obeying God. He said, they also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. That's a perfect thing for an idol to be broken down to. That's about all they're worth, or less. You know, we can... I mentioned two things, animism and voodooism, and you might think, well, what in the world does those things have to do with us? Well... And I can explain, animism is basically the idea that everything is animated with life. And therefore, if I can get in connection with something like a rock or a tree or a, or a flower and the animation of that life comes into me and then I can experience more of life, that's animism. Everything is animated through life. Well, there's no life in a rock. A rock is a rock. A tree is a tree. Sure, it's living, but it hasn't got a, the spirit of life in it that can do something for me, other than I can look at it and it's beautiful, unlike a tree. But it can't give me life. So my question was, is Christ Jesus enough for you? But we have to be... We have to be careful in the things that we think are going to give us life. The source of life is Jesus. He's the author and finisher of my faith. He's also the author and finisher of my life. It's in him we live, move, and have our being. It's not in nature that we live and move and have our being. I love mountains. I love flowers. I love gardens. I love things that, that grow. But keep them in the right place. Keep those things in the right place. Christ Jesus is enough for me. It's in him I live and move and have my being. And I don't want to ever be out of him. What are the forces what life forces are you looking for? I'm going to read that again. What life force are you looking for in drugs, in alcohol, in illicit sex, in whatever? If you're not looking for it in Christ Jesus, you're looking the wrong place. Because any of those things that I mentioned or anything else can lead you to something you don't want to get involved in.
Don't put life into things that do not have life. And don't look for life in things that can't give you life. Look to Christ Jesus. He is the, he is the life that you need, and he is enough. One of the things that I mentioned here was about the, the two gods, Baal and Asherah. So you had rock pillars and you had wooden pillars or trees, like the thing. And, they, and they, here was life for them. Here was their God. And Israel looked to these things, looked to these rocks, as a source of what they were going to get and what they needed when they would not look to the rock of our salvation. They listened to the wind as it blew through these idols to get some kind of a, 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 a direction, a guidance that would lead them, lead Israel to make right decisions and to do, do the things that they needed to do rather than listening to the wind of the Holy Spirit. They ran to all these other sources that they thought were sources and they found nothing because in the end, God cast them out of their land because of their wickedness and their vileness and their lack of ethics. Oh yeah, they went to the temple and they stood before God and they worshipped him, but God did not take their worship. They mixed everything together. You don't do that with God. It's God or it's nothing at all. You don't mix something else with him. Christ Jesus is the only source of life. And in him is life and, and nothing else is, will give you life. Nothing else. So what? We go into 1 Corinthians Bear with me, I've got a lot of things I want to say. I'm having to skip over some of my notes, but it's okay. See, there, there are things going on. You know, there is spiritual warfare. And we as believers and Christians, we are in a war. Whether you like it or not, we're at a, in a war. We war against our flesh. We war against this world. And we war against the evil one. But we are made to be victorious over all of those things when we realize that Christ Jesus is enough. Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Colossians 2.5 and 2.20 speak of elemental spirits taken captive 
are being taken captive by elemental spirits rather than Christ. I spoke of some of those things that we call elemental spirits. Truly, there are demonic entities out there. And a person can be demonized. But if you have Christ Jesus in you, they can't touch you. They can harass you, but they can't touch you. And you can overcome. You have authority. How many times I've spoken, I've spoken out when I knew that, that something was coming at me. I don't belong to you. Jesus owns me. Get out. There's nothing in me that belongs to you. And it works. And it works. I can tell it. So now, it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing about all, this, all these things. Taking the wisdom of this world and showing that it's foolishness in the eyes of God. You see, our, our ways are not God's ways, God's ways all the time. His ways are so much higher than us so far above us. That is why it's so important that we know his word. And we know his word and we study it, we meditate upon it, we allow his Holy Spirit to work through that word into our heart and to get it in there and to, and to help us to fashion and form our life the way he wants us to be. And verse 30, I think, is probably the, the, the most important verse here in, in what I'm trying to say. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is a deep, abiding, holy reverence and respect for the Lord and for His Holy Word, the Bible. Who is wise and understanding among you, out of James? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom is the ability to perceive the true nature of a situation and to implement the will of God. God's wisdom allowed him to look at, to look at what had happened in the garden, to look at the sin and implement the right program to remedy that problem. And that remedy is Jesus Christ on the cross, dying, dead, shedding his blood, and rising again. And taking the keys from the evil one of death, hell, and a grave, and coming back. And removing all authority from the evil one. And removing us, when we believe in him, removing us from his dominion into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son, Jesus. That's wisdom. 
the world would say, you're crazy. No, but that's wisdom because everything in this world is passing away and what is in Christ Jesus will last forever. He became to us righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including character, conscience, conduct, and command. Righteousness is therefore based upon God's standard because he is the ultimate lawgiver. And the only way we can have that righteousness is through Christ Jesus, the blood that he shed for us. He imparts that righteousness to us. He became to us sanctification. Uh, Here's one that sometimes creates an issue, creates a problem. Yes, he imparted to us sanctification. When we became believers in him, he set us apart for himself. But now here's the point. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do. You have a part in that sanctification. You need to decide, I'm going to do what's right in the eyes of God, and I will not do the things I used to do. I will decide to do what's right in the eyes of God. Yes, he says, you're holy. You're set apart because of the blood. But here's your part. Work it out. Work it out. Stop sinning. Stop doing the things that are wrong and you know they're wrong. Stop doing them. Don't do them anymore. It's exactly what Paul said. If you're sinning, stop sinning. You can You can do it. But you have to make up your mind, I'm going to live for the Lord. And when you make up your mind that way, guess what the Lord's going to do? Come in like a flood. And he will help you in every way. That's what happened to me on May 19th, 2021, when I said, yes, Lord, I'll do it your way. And he opened up a floodgate that has changed everything. Totally transformed me. I still don't get it all. But he did it. And he became to us redemption. Christina gave us a brilliant explanation of, of redemption. If you remember it, was it Judges or Ruth? Or, when we were doing those passages. You're, you're, I'm going my mind is going a million miles an hour. So I've got Redemption involves deliverance from bondage based on the payment of a price by a redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer. He had to pay the price for us. And what a price it was. It cost God the Father everything. It cost Jesus everything. Humanity is held in bondage and captivity to sin from which only the atoning death of Jesus Christ can liberate us. Jesus paid the price on the cross in death, but it did not stop there. Death could not hold Jesus. He rose again, and I can live. You can live because he's alive forevermore. Because of this redemption, it means we may have a life forever with Jesus if you believe and surrender your life to him. So is Christ Jesus enough for you? 
Does he have the wisdom to help you to make good and godly and wise decisions throughout your life? Does he have the power and the ability to help you to stop sinning? Does he have the power and the authority to break any bondages in your life, to set you free? And will you allow him to shed abroad in your heart such a great love that it will change everything? And will you say yes to him if you do not know him and allow him to change your life? And if you're struggling with something that makes it very hard for you to let go of, in the name of Jesus, you can let go and embrace the one who loves you more than anything, more than anyone could ever love you. And that love, once you is shed abroad in your heart, will make all the difference in the world. He has the power to change your life, and he has the authority to do it because he shed his blood. No demonic force, no demonic power can over, ever overwhelm you if you stand in Jesus, if you stand in Christ Jesus. For it is by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus because God sent forth his Son to die on that cross. And Christ Jesus did it willingly. And he rose again of his own accord. No one took his life from him. He did it because he loved you that much. If you do not know him, there are people up here to pray that will pray with you. And we invite you, and I invite you because I love you. And if you've got a struggle, you need to come forward and, and pray and let people pray with you. If you've got a difficulty, you need to have to seek the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are the source of life. And you gave to us the greatest gift of life that we could ever receive, your son Jesus. To pay a price for us we could never pay if we lived a million lifetimes. Thank you for shedding your blood, Jesus. And because you did that, because you went to the cross, and because you defeated death, Jesus, you're enough for me. You're enough for me for every one of us. Thank you, Jesus.